Thank you for joining IRW Coffee Break. This is a podcast series hosted by KPMG IRW specialists within the Washington National Tax Practice to discuss current topics in the field of information reporting and withholding. Every episode will discuss a discrete area of interest in a brief segment. So we invite you to grab a cup of coffee or just get comfortable while we explore all things IRW. Hi, I'm Lori Hatton Boyd. Thanks for tuning in to KPMG's IRW Coffee Break. On today's episode, we're going to cover some of the recent changes to the information reporting requirements related to Section 6050W. Joining me today is Kathy Sapios, the Director and Head of U.S. Advisory Information Reporting at Amazon. So obviously someone that's extremely well-versed with these requirements. Uh, Before we get into the changes and and the operational aspects to these changes, I'm going to take a few minutes to provide a brief overview of this reporting regime. Section 6050W was enacted in 2008 as a revenue offset to the Housing Assistance Tax Act. It went into effect a few years later. It basically requires information returns to be made by certain payors with respect to payments made in settlement of payment card transactions and third-party payment network transactions. More specifically, the code requires any payment settlement entity, and I'll go through these these definitions, to file an annual information return, which the IRS created its own form, 1099-K, to report the gross amounts paid in settlement of reportable payment transactions to participating payees. So let's just break that down. So first, a reportable payment transaction is a payment for goods or services through a payment card transaction. So essentially, this is just a merchant who's agreed to accept a debit, credit, store value card, et cetera, as payment, or through a third-party network transaction. And this, among other things, was really meant to capture internet purchases that are settled through a central organization. For payment card transactions, the payment settlement entity, or the payor, is called the merchant acquiring entity. For third-party network transactions, the payor is called the third-party settlement organization, or a TPSO. And the participating payees here are for the payment card transaction, the merchant who's accepting the card as payment. And in the third-party network transaction, the participating payee is the person that's accepting payment from that third-party settlement organization. So really, for both of these, we're just talking about the persons who are selling the goods or providing the services. Historically, there's been a significant distinction between the reporting requirements between these two payors. And that is that the merchant acquiring entity didn't have any de minimis thresholds. It just had to report all gross payments that it made settling these transactions. On the flip side, the third-party settlement organization was only required to report if the gross amounts that they paid exceeded $20,000 and there was more than 200 transactions that occurred in the calendar year. So those exceptions were really trying to exclude the college student that's selling their books at the end of the year on the internet. Those types of things they didn't want to be captured here. So that really is a big distinction. And as you can imagine, after this reporting regime came into place, many states adopted their own information reporting regimes that paralleled this. And interestingly, over time, many of the states changed that de minimis threshold. I think one even did so retroactively. During that same time, we saw proposed legislation on the federal side that would have also modified this threshold. In 2019, a bill was introduced that would have changed that exceeding $20,000 and exceeding 200 transactions to 5,050 transactions. And there was another bill that was proposed that just had a $1,000 threshold. Fast forward all of that to today. In March of this year, we did see legislation passed that replaces the current two-tier approach to a single not-to-exceed $600 threshold, so falling in line with the normal miscellaneous-type payments. 
This change was part of the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. It was an offset, revenue offset, of course, and it is effective for payments made starting next year. So 2022 payments that will be reported in 2023. And given this, I expect that we're going to start to see some additional changes on the state level as well. Some of the state legislation ties directly to the federal rules and then others just have their own standalone requirements. As with a lot of these recent proposals for increased information reporting, it's really the revenue estimates that are driving these changes. For this particular change, the revenue estimate on this is $8.4 billion over the next 10 years. So with all of that background and discussing what the changes are, I'm going to turn it to Kathy for a bit and first ask her, how challenging was it for a third-party settlement organization to deal with these individual state thresholds? seems like that would be an enormous challenge. It's very challenging. We now have nine states that have lower reporting thresholds than the current federal requirement. Typically, a TPSO can rely on the IRS's combined federal state filing program to meet most of its state reporting requirements. This allows the TPSO to report to the IRS as they normally do, and then the IRS shares the data with participant states. However, for those states that now have different reporting thresholds, you can no longer simply send the data to the IRS. Each state has developed its own direct filing processes, which require a TPSO to develop specialized reporting to comply and directly file data with that state. This may require gaining access to state portals, managing filing specifications that are different than what's been developed for the IRS, and even managing the different filing deadlines. All of this activity has to be done during your tax season, which as we know is already super busy. Also, the specifications are typically published very close to year end, so a TPSO doesn't have a long time to implement the changes. I'm actually hoping that by reducing the federal threshold down to $600, it will allow states to conform again to the federal requirement so that there can be more reliance again on the CFSF program. That does sound extremely challenging. Uh, so is that kind of what your recommendation was when the states reduced theirs, was that you just had to follow to the lowest common denominator, so to speak, just as, as the only mechanism to be able to comply? Yes, that's right, Lori. So, so basically, we have now all of these various um, state requirements with different specifications, as I mentioned, and then we have the lower reporting threshold. So we still try to maintain it in a way where we comply with the federal standard, but we also now have to complete the tax reporting at those lower thresholds for those various states. Then just moving on with the new federal change coming into effect in 2022, I know there's a lot to do operationally because I know that the TPSOs have their system set for those thresholds to trigger earlier so they know when to go out and solicit the TIN. But here we're in October now and you need to get those TINs for those smaller sellers that that historically have never come close to meeting the, the thresholds that are in place today to get their TINs. Or of course, you would have to back up with hold. How are you addressing things like that? There will definitely be a lot to do operationally. I think as a TPSO, the first question I would ask myself is just how scalable are my current processes and technology? Do I have the people, process, and systems to handle potentially significant volume increases of not only reporting forms, but also the management of other information reporting processes, such as tax identity collection and the application and remittance of backup withholding? I read a GAO study that said that they estimated that 75% of gig economy workers fall under current tax reporting thresholds. If this is a good estimate, then your solutions need to be scalable in order to manage the compliance requirements. 
If you have concerns around having the ability to scale quickly, I think the good news is that there are third-party software providers that may be able to help you quickly with solutions to help manage to these increased volumes. In terms of tax identity collection, I think as a TPSO, your impact will depend on whether you rely on the higher $20,000, 200 transaction threshold today or not when you collect forms W-9 and W-8. If you simply collect forms on account opening with no consideration of thresholds, you are probably in good shape in terms of managing to the changes of these rules. However, if you have payees, either all or some of them, that you haven't collected tax identity information for in the past because you never anticipated that they would meet the thresholds, then you will now need to solicit tax forms. You don't have a lot of time left to do so without also having to consider the possibility of having to back it withhold. If you make a payment after the first of the year to an account that does not have valid tax documentation on file and you pay the person now more than $600, you have a 24% back it withholding obligation. Remember, that obligation is also not on the gain or loss on the transaction, it's actually on the unadjusted gross sale figure. If you fail to withhold correctly, it becomes an obligation of the TPSO on these large amounts. Given the larger amounts, your customers will also not be happy if you withhold, and you as a company won't want the risk associated with, be, with actually failing to withhold. I would really implore anyone in this position to focus on collecting tax identity information from their legacy payees as soon as possible. Yeah, I think that's right. And my fear is a lot of the internet companies that allow you to just get on and and sell your one-off item, you know, I'm cleaning out my closet and want to sell all my kids' soccer shoes or whatnot, that they probably aren't collecting that tax ID number because they don't anticipate that people are ever going to meet those current thresholds. So I think that that may be a challenge for a lot of those smaller type uh, online sales companies. Exactly, Ori. And the other issue just, and again, is the backup withholding requirement, right? We don't have that much longer in the year to try to comply. And if you collect the information after the fact, and the payee provides you with that US-10 and says they're a US person, as we know, there's nothing in the regulations that allow you to actually just refund that withholding if you get a form after you paid that person. So that's another thing. And it's going to be a customer issue as well. So you're going to end up in a situation where you might have to increase your volumes of backup withholding that goes to the IRS and you don't have the opportunity to potentially refund it to them. And instead, you're going to have to issue a 1099 at the end of the year, which includes the federal amount withheld. And so there's a timing issue with that. The amount, again, is on the unadjusted gross sale and not on any gain or loss. So what looks like a mere reporting rule change actually has a knock-on effect on everything that you do in the space, including tax identity collection, reporting, and withholding. Yeah, Kathy, that's exactly right. And I think it's important for everyone to remember that there's no concept of a retroactive W-9 like there is a W-8. You either have the tax number in the manner required at the time you make the payment or you back up withhold. That's it. Unlike the non-U.S. side, you can't remedy this after the fact. So I think that's something people really need to remember. Exactly. And and it becomes very difficult when you're talking about this unadjusted gross sale figure, which I equate similar to like a 1099B proceeds transaction. These amounts are large and can be large over time, right? And so, um, so again, and it, it's not actually consistent potentially with what that person's gain or loss is. It's just a proceeds type of figure. So again, those numbers are going to be high. You're going to have to have scalable withholding solutions in a place where you might not have ha- actually ever had to really back up withhold before. So again, yeah, there is definitely a lot of challenge here. 
Yeah, and that's that's a great point and a lead way into the final thing I wanted to talk about today. And that is, what is that definition of gross amount? It, as you pointed out, it's extremely broad. It, it includes things like credits and taxes and fees and even refunded amounts. So it's a super broad concept here. I know ERSAC, which is an advisory committee to the IRS, had requested a change to this a few years ago, which really seems reasonable to me because the items I just listed, they're not something that's includable in income that the payee then deducts the expenses on their tax return. It's it's just not included in income at all. And given that information reporting is supposed to be matching up income that the person received to making sure it was reported on their tax return, this particular information reporting regime just doesn't work that way. And so it's a little odd, but the government did respond to that. And they said that because these items can vary by industry and even by taxpayer, they just didn't want to go down that road. So I think the question to you, Kathy, is operationally, is that difficult to handle when you're capturing amounts when the product may have actually been returned? And then also just what about a, like a customer relation perspective? I, I'm sure people get confused. Oh, for sure they do. <laughs> and you tend to get those questions during tax reporting season when they get a figure on their 1099 that they don't understand. So just as you mentioned, that unadjusted gross sales figure, due to the fact that it doesn't consider the things that you mentioned, like the fees, the taxes, and the refunds, and the like, it's really just not that easy for your customer to understand. Your customer primarily expects that their tax reporting figure is going to match the cash they actually received on the transaction, and if it doesn't match, then that's, again, when you can expect to get questions during tax reporting season. Your customer might also get really easily frustrated because they can't really easily identify their expenses in order to properly account for them on their tax return. It created the need to develop a really a detailed statement that, while not required by law for you to produce because it's not part of the 1099 itself, it actually is a statement that helps to reconcile to all those items that you mentioned in order to kind of map out with the sales figure so that you can reconcile all those expenses so that they can understand what you put on that 1099 form. Yeah, I think something like that's a great idea because I could see somebody getting that 1099K and seeing that dollar amount on there and saying, oh, you didn't pay me this much. You know, I'm not understanding yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, it's, and like you said, the refunds are really the most challenging thing of all because if you do have a buyer that returned an item, that seller was never paid any cash. Um, that amount was refunded to the buyer. And so you still have that obligation to report that as part of the unadjusted gross sale. And then if you go back to backup withholding rules, you're applying backup withholding on the unadjusted gross sale transactions, right? So again, um, all of this becomes really complex. And if you're a customer, there's a lot of different things that go into that calculation that really does not result in cash in hand. And so it's something that they have questions about and you'd be better to be proactive about it and try to come up with that reconciliation for them in order to ensure that you don't get hit really hard on the customer service side during tax reporting season when people have questions about how to reconcile this information. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your expertise and your thoughts. Thank you so much, Lori, for having me. We hope you'll join us for the next episode of IRW Coffee Break. <laughs>